Thank you for joining us today. This is Clint Byers, lead pastor of Forward Church. I pray this message blesses and encourages you. I hope it inspires transformative grace in your heart and establishes you even deeper in your new covenant identity in Christ. Now take a deep breath, become aware of God's spirit within you, and enjoy the message. Today, I'm just going to go through chapter 4. And chapter 4 is interesting because toward the end of it, he gets into this kind of circular communication like, uh, like so many of the biblical authors do. They'll speak something and then they'll expound on it a little bit different way and then they'll approach it from a different perspective and say it, you know, poetically or with metaphor and then they'll go back into, you know, kind of the doctrine and then they'll talk about specifics, but yet they're still talking about the same kind of thing. And I think that's what gets confusing about the Bible is we feel like that there's a whole bunch of different kinds of things that we have to learn. And every chapter and every line, and we feel like it's like all these details. I got to figure out what everything, what everything means. What does it all mean? You know, and it's like it's pretty simple. There's not that much in there that's that's different than other things that are said in there. That was a real simple. That was like a real deep <laughs> statement, right? But what I, what I'm saying is, a lot of the same concepts are said. They're just say, said in different ways. So that's important about when you approach scripture. You try to get the concept of what's being said rather than just trying to understand the specific doctrine. You want to understand the specific doctrine, but the specific doctrines link together as you understand the bigger picture of the concepts. You know, And so what he's talking about here is God loves you. Don't sin, but if you do, remember what Jesus has done for you. And the more, you're, the more you let yourself be influenced by what Jesus has done for you, the more you will live a life that reflects what he has done for you and you'll bring, bring glory to God. And the way that you live the best in what he has done for you is you love God and you walk in love toward others. Like the highest form of obedience is that no matter the situation, you recognize the authority of God in that situation and you walk in love toward others. So if you're in a place of offense or illness or you've been legitimately victimized and you have trauma or, or there's just continual injustice in your life, it's like, okay, who is Jesus in this situation? Who is he in me? Who am I in him? Now, how can I walk as he walked in this situation? That's like the highest form of obedience that you can submit to is the, the name, the authority of Jesus would say this, I'm healed, I am delivered, I am loved and honored in the kingdom, even though I'm not loved and honored in this group, I'm not going to let this experience, this temporary experience in this world of not being honored and respected, I'm not going to let that experience in this world define me, I'm going to let myself understand that I'm in Christ where I am in him where all honor and glory goes to and in him I'm celebrated in the kingdom. Amen. You know what I mean? So you you got to take your situation, let go of it, recognize who you are in him and let that define who you are. See because the biggest problem that we have of why we're not living victoriously is we have assumed temporary identities. If we will assume our true spiritual eternal identities and like actually believe that that's what we are, that's how we'll live. You live according to the image of yourself that you have written on the inside of your heart. You've got a self-portrait in there, and you consult it every time you face anything, especially when the world is in turmoil like it is, and all these different things are going on, and maybe you're going into a new arena, or things are changing for you. You're looking at the world, and then you look back at yourself. And you're, okay, who am I in this situation? And then that, that dictates to you the choices that you're going to make. And we, you have to know that you are the righteousness of God in Christ. You have to know that you are loved by God always, no matter what, that Jesus will never forsake you, that you are a new creation. You are not a sinner. You are a saint. You are a child secure in the kingdom of God that he's put his spirit in you. All of those identity things, you got to know those things. Those aren't things that you're trying to attain to. Those are things that you are in spirit, and that is the part that's going to live forever. And the more that you know that you are that now, the more it will affect 
every other aspect of your life. And it will teach you how to live and how to make choices. It's incredibly important to look into the mirror of the Word and have it reflect back to you who you are in Christ, not the shortcomings that are in your life. Like if you're looking at the Word and you read it and you feel guilty and condemned, you're, you're focusing on the wrong things. I mean, that's what the law will do. The law will condemn you, but it points you to Jesus and then you recognize, no, that's not who I am. I am not this failure. I am not this behavior. I am not this trauma. I am not this lie. I am complete in Him. I am the head and not the tail. I am risen with Him. I'm seated at the right hand of the Father. That's who I am. And you have to be able to get a hold of yourself Almost step out outside of your temporary life and point yourself back to, what are you doing, man? Don't you know who you are? And I think, you know, that's how the Holy Spirit talks to me. It's like, you dummy, you big dummy. He pulls a Fred Sanford on me. You big dummy. Anybody like that show? I grew up watching that show with my dad. Lamont and Fred. Man, that's such a good show. They just don't make them like that anymore, do they? But it's, and, and so, so what John says is one of the greatest things, one of the most effective things, one of, the, one of the things that will testify the most that you are living from the perspective that you know who you are in Christ is you walk in love toward others. And if you have forgotten who you are and you are not living according to those godly standards that should be reflected in your life, you remember that you're forgiven, 1 John 2, don't sin, but if you do, remember you're an advocate with the Father. And then you walk in love toward others. It's almost as if he's telling you one of the ways to get back into knowing who you are and experiencing walking in the light with God is intentionally walk in love toward others, even when you don't feel like it. And, and not where you're just externally doing something nice for somebody, but inside you're like... <laughs> you know, you're shoving that anger down. Like, honestly, have you ever had this experience? Have you ever prayed for someone that you were mad at and then it, and then it shifts to you have compassion for that person? Yep. Like you genuinely feel like, oh, you know, it changes. We don't do that enough, especially for ourselves. Goodness, we're mad at ourselves all the time, beating ourselves up, condemning ourselves. Pray for yourself. Pray for yourself that, you know, from God's love. Not from that sense of guilt and shame. Walking in love. Amen? Amen. So, 1 John 4, and we'll just walk right through this. Re really, the meat of what we're going to... Not, we're not going to get super detailed in the entire chapter because the back two-thirds of this particular chapter is kind of that circular language about walking in love. But the first part is incredibly important. So, the first three verses in 1 John 4 is mostly what we're going to focus on, and then we'll go, uh, uh, verse 2 really, then we'll go from there. 1 John 4, 1, I'm in the New King James Version. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, you know, you get the deliverance camp people that make everything about a demon, and so this is kind of like you get into these weird kind of discerning, the, this is when the the, what do you call those divining rods come out and everybody's trying to figure out, well, this is the spirit of Jezebel and this is the spirit of division and you got the spirit of offense and you got the spirit of stupid, you know what I mean? Whatever it might be. <laughs> you know, there, there, the, there is biblical precedent for the spirit of infirmity and things like that. I get that. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to downplay that. There are demonic lying spirits out there. There are doctrines of demons that we fall for. But I just don't know that we need to go into that side of trying to figure all that stuff out. It's like the devil has lost. Amen. Go. You know how Jesus talked to the devil? Go. Yes. I mean, pretty much, right? So, that's, and, and in context, it's not even really talking about that as much as it's talking about the spirit in which these teachers are talking about Jesus. That's what he's about to say. So the spirits that you test are the concepts of how these prophets and teachers are talking about Jesus. Test what's being taught by these guys. So, 
don't, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, and this is the operative term that we're looking at here, in the flesh. What does that mean? In the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard from was coming and is now already in the world. I mean, this is a couple thousand years ago, you know, so some of our eschatology might need to shift a little bit. I, I'm still studying some things, but I just don't, I just don't know that um, we need to have as much fear as some of those doomsday prophets say that we need to have about the future. Yeah. Amen. I, I, you know, I'll just say that without trying to have some kind of underlying. But anyway, so, so in the flesh, that's what we're talking about. Now, this is not talking about whether or not Jesus existed. You know, because some people just water it down to that. This is not talking about the idea of whether or not Jesus was a real person or came at all or anything like that. It's talking about what kind of being he was when he was here. That's what we're talking about. So let me just look at a few passages and we'll kind of start to round out. The reason this is important, I'll just tell you now, the reason it's important to understand what it means for Jesus to have come in the flesh it's important because you are in the flesh, in a physical body, and you have to overcome the world, but he has overcome the world for you in the same form that you're in now. So you have his spirit and his victory in you to empower you to overcome those things that he has already overcome in the same form as you. Amen. Jesus is God, I'm not saying that he wasn't God. But let's look at a few of these things. Does that make sense? This, this concept gets me in trouble sometimes. I probably, this is one of the ones that I get emails about when I start talking about this kind of thing. And it's, well, let's just go. Here we go. John, this is, no, so not 1 John, but the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And I'm going to look at verses 1 and 14. We're just going to look at a few passages about the incarnation, the kind of being that Jesus was when God took upon flesh and became human. Talk about that a little bit. So, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the Word became flesh. I love that because what, like in my mind, so the Word Word, the word word in the Greek is the word logos, L-O-G-O-S. And the word logos is, the Greeks used that word because this was written in Greek and that was the word that they were using conceptually. The Chinese will use the word Tao. I mean, anybody ever heard the Tao, T-A-O, the Tao Te Ching? Yeah, it's interesting. I, actually, one of my favorite leadership books is a guy that is called the Tao of Leadership and he went through the Tao Te Ching and he converted them over to like leadership principles. It's pretty cool if you're in, in leadership uh, find that book. But so the word is logos here. And the logos, from their perspective, when the Greeks were philosophizing and all that, whatever that word is, they would look at nature and recognize there's an order to things. There is a system. There is a, you know, like the Chinese call it the, the web that has no weaver. So in other words, there's the evidence of something there, but we don't know what it is, but there's obviously an intelligence that undergirds everything that exists. That's what they recognized. You know, now evolutionists would say that that thing created itself. Well, what gave it the intelligence to better itself throughout the adaptive process? Well, we don't know. Well, but there had to be some kind of, they recognize an intelligence. They would even refer to that as logos, the creative intelligence behind it that supports everything. So we know this here clearly says that that logos is God. God, in his knowledge and in his wisdom and in his creative creativity, created a world and a system and a universe with consistent laws of physics, with consistent you know, processes and everything, with a plan and all of that. And it was complete when he created it, and it was perfect when he created it, and we messed it up. But he will restore it. Amen? That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the restoration of all things. 
like Peter says, is going to happen. So if we have some bad years before we get there, then we have some bad years before we get there. Um, but so, so I think of all of that intelligence, right? All of, the, all of the creativity that created everything and sustains everything manifested into a human. You know, like that's what I see. It's like everything that God is, all his logic, his understanding, his wisdom, his character, his knowledge, all became down into a human and walked and dwelt among us and lived. If you want to know how God is, look at Jesus. Jesus is the exact representation of the invisible God. Jesus is. You look at him, and there's not an aspect of God that's missing in Jesus. Everything that we ever need to know about God is reflected and evidenced in Jesus. Well, what about the judgment part? Jesus walked around forgiving people and being merciful. Well, you see the judgment side when he himself bore our sin and became our curse for us on that cross. You see the, the, the righteous and judge, the, the, the just side of God that has to deal with the law and penalty. You do see that in Jesus. He just wasn't throwing it on mankind. He took it on himself, which is incredibly powerful. Because, you know, one of the criticisms of the Bible is that there seems to be two different gods. There's the Old Testament God and there's the New Testament God, you know. The Old Covenant law and the New Covenant that is secure in Him. And it's like, no, He's not different. He just shifted how He's operating toward mankind because He Himself stood in our place. All right, so let me, I don't want to get too off track. So we're still talking about this idea of Jesus came in the flesh, all right? This one is incredibly powerful. This is Romans 8, 3. I think this is the New American Standard. I may have switched the translations on you. Um, Romans 8, 3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Uh-oh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So his son came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Did Jesus sin? No. Obviously not. Could he have? He could have. Now, this is where... All right, I don't want to get ahead of myself. So, sin has to be condemned in the body of the sinner. The penalty of breaking the law has to be paid in the body of the one that broke the, penalty, that broke the law. We could not bear that because if we experienced that, we would be obliterated. But Jesus, in his righteous form, having flesh, was able to take the condemnation of God's standard toward sin in his own body on behalf of all that would ever have flesh. So he did it on behalf of all mankind. Now, some people would think, well, why didn't he just forgive? I don't know. There's something in the elemental aspect, I think, like the physicality of a human body going through that, that punitive process and restorative process that has to do with, the cre with creation. Like there's more going on than just God had to punish sin. I think there, there's, a, there's a transmutive aspect to that. There's, there's, this, there's this physical aspect. You know, I can't really put it into words. Are you, are you following me? Like there's something that needed to happen physically in the body of humans to be able to process that and make us able to be in the light. All right, so let's keep going. The next verse is going to be in Hebrews 2. Again, we're talking about Jesus came in the flesh. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, maybe a couple more, yep. Therefore, since the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power over death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. That's again talking about kind of beings, 
humans. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Now, he does, we're talking about Jesus, right? Was he tempted? Now, can God be tempted? Can he? This is the uh-oh moment. God cannot be tempted, neither tempts he any man. James 1. Was Jesus tempted? Can God be tempted? Is Jesus God? Of course he is. Don't think we're saying Jesus is not God. It's just in the meantime, when God became human, he had to limit himself in every way like we are in order to bridge that gap so that through him, all mankind could be joined back to the Father. There was something mysterious in the way that he came to this earth. Now, let's keep going. You ready? Everybody, you okay? Does this say that Jesus was tempted? Okay. Now, it's important to know because you go to Jesus, and remember, it's the spirit of Antichrist that says that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, that he wasn't a human. Because a lot of what was going around in these false prophet teachings was a Gnostic doctrine that Jesus wasn't really human, that he was kind of this light emanation from God. And if you remember, you go back to 1 John chapter 1, and he says, Beheld, we saw him, we beheld his glory, we touched him, we lived with him, we walked with him. Getting to the point, and that's the problem of parsing this chapter out or this book out over five, six weeks, you know, go back and read the whole book in light of one of the big things is people that are denying that Jesus was a human, fully human, you know, still full of the Spirit of God. I mean, even it's, it's amazing to me that in John 17, Jesus prays, uh-oh, we're losing them. I'm teasing. <laughs> Doesn't run somebody off. They're yelling heresy as they leave. In John 17, Jesus prays, Lord, I'm ready to pick back up the glory that I had with you before I came here. He acknowledges there's something different about him while he's here. And to deny that is to deny that Jesus came in the flesh. That's the whole point of what he's talking about here. I, I, it's like, I know it's like, how do you put all this together? I don't know that we really fully can put it all together because it's such a spiritual concept and it's bigger than bigger than intellectual understanding, but in your heart, I pray that this verifies to the truth of, and, and the, what you, the biggest takeaway in this is that Jesus knows what I'm going through. He has faced every single thing that I will ever face, and he lived victoriously in the face of it, walking through it. Therefore, because he intercedes for me, he can help me. There's not one thing that you will ever face that God doesn't understand because he's been there already tempted in all ways like we are, yet without sin, to empower you by His grace to live victoriously in whatever you might face. We all, and that's the, that's the biggest lie of the enemy, you're special. You're unique. It's different for you. You're, you see, it's different for you. You're, you're kind of this person that really is the one that's the exception to the, you know, that we hear that. So, Jesus was tempted, yes? Where does that come from? You're going to love this one. James 1, 13, Let no man say when he's tempted, I am being tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Was Jesus tempted? It's because he had lust. Is lust sin? Remember, it goes on to say, then when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. So Jesus was able to have desire, yet not let it conceive unto sin. Right. So can you. Amen. And the crowd went wild. 
That's a good idea. We need to have some sound effects. We need one of those buttons. <laughs> it, it, brings, it brings Jesus down to the level that he understands you, you know? If you feel distant from God, you walk through these passages, you realize, man, he went through some stuff. He really did. Deeper than anything I will ever really face. On behalf of all humanity, there's not one thing that you will face that Jesus didn't face. There's not one thing that will tempt you out of your own lust that Jesus didn't also have lust for, that he exercised a fruit of the spirit of self-control to not let it conceive unto sin. That, to me, that's incredibly powerful. Now think about this. The miracles. The miracles that he did. Did he do that because he was God or because the Spirit of God in him worked through him just like it can for you? I dare say there was nothing different about Jesus when he was doing miracles than there is about you when you step out to pray for others. The same power. Jesus said it's his, he can, of himself can do nothing. Didn't he say that? Of myself, I can do nothing. Why? Because he came in the flesh. His spirit is in you to empower you to live like him. A couple more. Let's keep going. Philippians 2. Philippians 2, 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Again, another way, you know, just a whole another way of saying it. Those who deny that Jesus was a man like us, capable of sin, are deceived by the Antichrist spirit. Now, I'll just kind of let that sit. You know, we read like five passages that verify Jesus came in the flesh. Jesus was a human. Jesus could have failed. Jesus had to trust God. Jesus had to capture his thoughts and deal with, deal with lust. Jesus had to face loneliness. He had to face all of that stuff. And on that cross, he had to conquer sin. He was tempted in that garden to not carry through with God's plan for him. Three times he prayed, God, if there's another way, please let this cup pass from me. I don't know. I mean, of course, the gruesomeness of the cross and what he was about to experience was going to be horrific. But I think the biggest thing that he was uh, burdened by facing was separation from the Father. People will say God didn't separate himself from Jesus, that when he was quoting Psalm and David this and misquoted, and it's like, no. God separated himself from Jesus, and Jesus passed into the grave, into Hades. You read Psalm 18. You read a lot of these Psalms. So Acts 2, Peter sets the precedent that David in the Psalms is prophesying the words of the Messiah from the grave. And in the grave, it's all through the Psalms, the Messiah is crying out to be delivered from the pit. But he passed through. That, that, you know, there, will be, there are people that will argue whether or not Jesus passed into the grave and went into Hades. They'll say that he just died and then went to heaven or something, you know, kind of floated around for a little while and three days later came back. A lot of people have trouble with the idea that Jesus went into the pit went into Hades, into Sheol, the abode of the wicked. P people have trouble with that because it's like, well, God can't go to hell. Well, we're not talking about the lake of fire. We're talking about the place where d disembodied, wicked, unrighteous spirits go. He went there. Why? Because he was like that. He took the full penalty of God's judgment toward humankind in himself and went into every aspect that a human could experience and broke its power. Hell, Hades, the grave, has no power over you because Jesus defeated it.
That, 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 there's, a, there's a giant theological divide in the body of Christ over that idea. There just, there just is. And some of you might not agree with that. That's okay. But I'm, what I'm trying to do is help you understand the depths of which Jesus went through to bring you from death to life. And that there is nothing that exists that can keep you separate from God because Jesus has faced it and beat it. Remain in your faith toward him. Amen. So we're going to show Ephesians 4, 9. So now this, now this he ascended, what is it, what does it, uh, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lowest, the lower parts of the earth. Now, the lower parts of the earth, um, yeah, well, go ahead, go ahead. Let's just read the whole thing there. Uh, he who also descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So conceptually, that's talking about he went to the deepest place that a human could go, to the highest place that exists. And he joined it, he conquered everything that exists, and he rescued you in, from all of it. And you are now in that highest place with him. Amen. Amen. So the, go back to 9. Thank you for finding that, by the way. But, so Ephesians 4 and I need to commit that to memory. Uh, but that he first descended into the lower parts of the earth. Now, that's language, lower parts of the earth, for the grave or Hades or Sheol. That same language is used, the lower parts of the earth, into that abode of the wicked. And he remained... I, personally, I don't think... I think the greatest test... It's a little chilly in here. If you would bump it up a degree, Adam. I think, Christ, I think Jesus' greatest test of faith was not remaining sinless on this earth. I think it was that he remained in faith toward the Father in the grave. I mean, we're talking dead. Say dead. dead. Jesus is dead. Did he not come back from the grave? I mean, where was he when he was dead? Just like pretending like he was taking a nap or something? You know, no, he was dead. Died the death that we deserve. And without God, you go to the bad place. He's in that place to defeat it. Amen. And he did. Read Psalm 18. All right. I think I have probably shaken every theological bone in your body thus far, so let's keep going. Do you see it, though? All right. Um, yeah, he led captivity captive. That's a reference to he went down in there and once he conquered it, he led. There were, there were other saints that resurrected at his resurrection. You guys, you guys know that? Like there were other people walking around Jerusalem. It's like, oh, look, I mean, who was that, you know? Maybe that was Moses and Abraham or whoever those people were. I mean, who, who else was that, right? What, what happened? It, to me, that's like one of the greatest things about the resurrection is what he went through before he resurrected. So, And I think the next... Uh, passion of the Christ that Mel Gibson is working on is actually a reference to that part of him in the grave. I heard him kind of hint to on that. So we all love the passion. So, And I think I'm just going to read through the rest of 1 John 4 just because you'll see where it kind of circulates back to. So he deals with this very deep, very profound point of making sure that you understand what God did for you in Christ who Jesus is, and don't deny that Jesus came as a human here because that takes away from God his capacity to understand what it's like to be a human, right? Not just understand it, but have gone, having gone through it. All right, so 1 John 4, 4, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Leave it on 4. Oh, I'm controlling it. <laughs> think, but think about that, right? How much more meaning does that bring to you now? Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Yeah. This is talking about the enemy, but it's talking about us too. You're in the world. Greater is God who is in you than you who are facing the world. Because he was the same kind of being you are with all the same limitations of the flesh, yet still conquered sin and death, even in your form, therefore he's able to help you in your state. All right, so 
Now, the love part, 1 John 4, 5. Now, because of that, we can have compassion toward others. Jesus went through that for you too. You know, I'm kind of mad at this person. I don't agree with anything that that person stands for. But he went through that for them too. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. We, he, he, knows, he who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So by this, wrapping back up to the idea Jesus came in the flesh. That's how you know who is of the Antichrist or not, who is of God or not, those who understand that Jesus came in the flesh. That's what he's saying there. Now, am I saying that those people that don't believe that aren't of God? Not really, because I think people can be confused about those kinds of things. But for them, that was a big deal because they were in Gnostic mindsets back then, and they were, they were trying to uh, dehumanize God and make him like the other deities out there that weren't really, couldn't really do something for you. So, all right, let's keep going. 4-7, uh, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. And remember, we went through that last week, is not presently experiencing God, for God is love. I mean, what a profound concept. God is is love. Like if you could put God under a microscope, that he's love. Like he just, he just is love. And he's the kind of love that emanates healing and wholeness, restoration. Verse 9, in this, the love of God was manifest toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. I have this note. How do you know you're saved? You love one another. You know, because 1 John has been used to make people question their salvation of if they sin or not after they get born again. Well, I think the barometer of whether or not you're saved is not whether or not you sin. You're going to sin. You shouldn't continue in it. It's not an excuse for sin. But are you walking in love? Now, if you're a mean person, don't let that be. You know, anyway, let's keep going. <laughs> First John 4, 10. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected or matured in us. And this is, you know, it's by our love for one another that the body of Christ grows up into maturity and uh, unity of the faith, right? As we walk in love, like lo walking in love toward people. And it's not, it's not that it teaches you to compromise, but it teaches you to unite in the higher things. Like, like the groups that fight over doctrine and feel like that they're the truth police and reject others because they don't necessarily believe their way, they're focused on law, and they could be loving people, but there's a better way, yes. and that is love. And love is not permissive. Love doesn't excuse bad doctrine and, and error and sin, but it just recognizes that the body of Christ growing up into maturity is that we love one another, and that love will bring us to a place of wholeness and sound doctrine and unity of faith and, you know, all of that. Uh, by this we know that we abide in him and he is in us because he has given us of his spirit. Now, if you try to go through line upon line doctrinally through this part, you, you see that it, it's kind of circular. He's just kind of saying a lot of the same things over again. Um, <clears throat> and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been matured or perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. <laughs> what? Like, honestly, just take that and meditate on that this week. 1 John 4, 17, love has been perfected among us that we may have boldness. So like, whatever your vision of the day of judgment is, 
see yourself standing there just like Jesus is. There's no reason to ever be afraid of the judgment of God. You, your sin has already been judged in Christ. Any judgment that you face is at the judgment seat of Christ, which is for reward. A believer, a child of God, will never be judged for righteousness, for sin. And in the day of judgment, as he is, so are you. Even in this world. I mean, it's just, it's just incredible. You know, these people that teach that God is going to judge you, that God's getting ready to judge nations, and because America has joined itself to Israel, Israel, America is now in covenant with God, and God is somehow because unhappy with America, and now God's got to judge America because He's just and He has to. And if we bow on our knees and we beg Him to not judge us and withhold the judgment and we tell Him how sorry we are for our sin, then maybe He'll respond and then He'll heal our land. Are you paying attention? Because that's what's being said. Most of the body of Christ is clueless about the new covenant. And I don't really, I, you know, I want, to, I want to join with our brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to share the stage and participate in these prayer groups that are doing these kinds of things. But most of the people that are banding together to pray for our nation are praying Old Covenant perspectives. They're praying from an Old Covenant mindset. They're not understanding that God has already judged the world in Jesus. Now, there's judgment for the Antichrist. Those who don't receive Christ at the resurrection... They experience whatever they're going to experience, but as far as God having some wrath left for the world, it, can't, it put it all in Jesus. That's how I see it. There, there's some things that I may not understand, you know, but this idea that somehow America is Israel and Israel is America, and I already said it. I don't need to say it again. You okay with that? I mean, you know, don't get mad at me. And I, and I love those people. But there's so much fear being poured out right now. And so much confusion about who God is. And so much neglect of what Christ accomplished. Like, if you think that God is about to judge America because of abortion and homosexuality, and if we will apologize enough that that will convince him to hold off that judgment a little bit longer, you might have the spirit of stupid on you. <laughs> you certainly don't understand the new covenant. Oh, man, I'm telling you what. We need to know. We need to know. The body of Christ needs to grow up and understand what Jesus accomplished. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. I love how the New Living says this part right here. It says that um, if you're afraid of God, it's because you're afraid of what he might do to you and shows that you are not yet convinced of his love for you. If you're afraid of what God might do to you, it's because you are not yet convinced of His love for you. And the reason that you don't have to be afraid of what God might do to you is because of what He did to Jesus. <laughs> it's the biggest deal that the church needs to be preaching. And it makes the Pharisees say, well, are you saying that we should continue in sin? Are you saying that everybody's saved? No. God forbid. God's not mocked. With that what you sow, you reap. Nobody's getting away with their sin. They will reap whatever they sow. But it's not God waiting to judge them. He already judged all in Christ. I, I understand how hard that is to, to let sink in because it's not what's predominantly taught. But it is the new covenant. And it is the proper understanding of the sufficiency of the sin offering of Christ. 
And to, if you want to understand it deeper, go look in the Old Covenant about the Yom Kippur once one time a year Day of Atonement sacrifice where the priest brought the offering rather than the people bringing the offering. Where the priest is the one that, on behalf of the whole nation of Israel, consecrated himself as a representative of Jesus, sacrificed the lamb for the, uh, the atonement of the entire nation. Now, it's not just a covering for us. It's actually a removal for us. Say that again. This evening is? Cool. I, maybe there's something to that because I just feel I didn't plan on camping out on this concept that much, but it's like take a stand for the finished work of Jesus. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Well, just tell him what you really feel, John. <laughs> For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, how can he love God who he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. And it's a fruit. It's not a law. Amen? Are you with me? Because that's what this church is called to do, is be a, be a loud voice for the gospel, right? To be a I can you know I just feel God He's even doing things in me. There's a there's just a boldness that we have to walk in. You know, I don't, I don't want to water down the gospel. I don't want to worry about what the Pharisees and the religious might think because the world needs to hear the gospel. The world needs to know what Jesus did for them. It's only the religious that get mad at a message like this. Yeah. I mean, it's true. God loves us. We cannot rise to his level so he became like us to destroy everything that would separate a human from him as a human himself so that through him we are joined to him in him forever it's really pretty that simple praise god so let's just stand up and just ask him to give you a revelation of his finished work Ask him to give you a revelation of who Jesus is and what he did for you. you know, ask him to help you stand in this finished work. Ask him to help you know your part in his body to communicate this gospel. Like that, that's, that's what I would ask you. Ask him to show you what is your part and then show you that first step. I mean, some of you are running down that path already. You know, what your next step might be. I'll say the next step, right? Maybe not first step, next step. Ask him. Father, we thank you. We stand as your ambassadors, as your kingdom citizens, as your children, as your family of light on this planet. We are not of this world. We are of you. And we commit to pursuing your kingdom first. And we commit to taking care of each other in this community walking in love toward one another and then extending that even further to our brothers, our other brothers and sisters in Christ, all who have your spirit dwelling within them, no matter what they think of us or no matter how they talk about you, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ and we commit to loving them. And we thank you, Father, that you are knitting our hearts together to be a banner of the gospel, to show the world how much you love them as we love one another. It is what will show the world that you love them also. Amen. We got a lot of growing up to do, Lord, but we're, we're up for it. We give you our hearts to grow up. Yes. We trust you, Lord. We trust you. Now, I ask you, I ask you for clarity and revelation on our next step, collectively and individually. Like right now in this moment, Lord, I thank you for clarity of that next step.
and we will respond, and we will walk in love. We will love because you first loved us. We thank you so much, Jesus. Jesus, thank you so much. You know, there may be people that listen to this or hear this or even in this room, you're not sure that you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. I give you the opportunity in this moment to say yes to Jesus. Be willing to believe that what he did was for you. It was on your behalf. You might not understand it all. You might not feel anything, but you're willing to turn your heart toward him and ask him to save you. Ask the Father, save me. Through Christ, I believe that you can save me. Father, I thank you that in this moment, I am becoming born again in you. Jesus, thank you what you did for me. You know, and if you did make that decision for the first time, let us know. Reach out to us. Send an email. Info at forward.church. If you're in this room and made that decision, go see my wife back there. Sarah's walking back there. Raise your hand. Oh, man, I just feel, I feel Jesus. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this message. And thank you to those of you who support Forward Ministries financially. You truly are changing the way the world sees God. You're helping people detox from performance-based religion and experience God's love for them. We're committed to helping you renew your mind so you'll experience transformation and move forward in every area of your life. I pray you're making this hard journey. Visit my website at clintbyers.com for hundreds of free teachings and articles that will empower you to renew your mind and put on your eternal identity in Christ. I'm especially excited about my tools for transformation that have original music and modern technology designed to help you slow down and connect with the Spirit of God in your heart. I'd like to invite you to partner with Forward Ministries. Help us continue to spread the gospel and develop resources that are empowering people to grow in their identity in Christ. Thank you again for joining me. I pray God's blessings and promises over you and your family today.